As you find your seats, go ahead, grab your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Uh, it's a joy and a privilege to share the Word of God with you again this morning. And uh, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 36 through 46 in Matthew chapter 26, uh, where we find Jesus in a garden just moments before he will be betrayed, arrested, tortured, and crucified. And he and his disciples have just left the room where they held the Passover meal, and Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, which we looked at last week. And just as he held the cup that represented his blood poured out as a sacrifice for many, we're going to see reference to a different cup today that helps us understand why our Savior experienced such agony in the garden. And uh, that word agony and suffering is, a, is an interesting word um, to think about when it comes to Jesus. We don't like to think about Jesus as one who, who suffered and experienced pain, but rather uh, maybe more of a courageous resolve, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. And so um, I was thinking this week, as, as you get to know me, you, you'll realize that I have a lot of different like hobbies and, and passions, things that I, I like and I'm interested in. Um, and I'm kind of the type of person where once I decide I like something, I just go all in on that thing for a long period of time, and I buy all the things that relate to that, and then I get bored of it and move on to something else. Uh, ask my wife. It's a dangerous thing in our marriage, um, but I'm working through it. But one of the things that I've recently just been, like, fascinated by is kind of, like, the grit, uh, perseverance factor of the Navy SEALs, and uh, I'm just fascinated by, by this whole thing. And um, I'm not going to talk about this too much because some of you do not care at all. And I'm no, by no means an expert. But one thing I do know about the Navy SEALs is that every SEAL has to go through something called BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. Right? And uh, it's this grueling 24-week-long training that they go through various tests, physical tests. And there's one week in particular affectionately named Hell Week. Um, that these, these men go through, and it's uh, just continuous training, and uh, they get about four hours of sleep for the whole week together, and they accomplish these various tasks, and it just looks entirely too difficult. Um, here's here's the, the official Navy SEALs website description of, of Hell Week. It says, in this grueling five-and-a-half-day stretch, each candidate sleeps only about four total hours, but runs more than 200 miles and does physical training for more than 20 hours per day. Successful completion of Hell Week truly defines those candidates who have the commitment and dedication required of a SEAL. Hell Week is the ultimate test of a man's will. Anybody like, yeah, sign me up. That sounds great. Like, I don't know who's running their marketing department, but that's not the most like, hey, uh, cool, yeah, I'll sign right up. But you can't read that and, and look at a picture like this, and if you were to meet a, a seal in real life, you would not be without some form of respect, right? There may be an understanding that, that you couldn't do that, and there's no way I could ever get through that type of uh, suffering and agony, but I respect those who do it with such resolve and endurance. And it's funny as you dig into it, like um, this isn't like every, every person who enters the Navy tries to go to be a, a SEAL, right? There's, there's only about 2,500 active SEALs, which is 1% of the entire Navy. And, and that's not because they're hard for trying. Like guys apply to this, the dropout rate within the Navy SEALs is 80%. 
So 80% of the men who attempt to get through training, and even if you complete Hell Week, even if you get through BUDS, you're not guaranteed to be a SEAL. It is a 24-week process to get through this thing. And uh, as you look at it, it's not even really about the tasks themselves. Like the, the physical training aspect, it's all very difficult, but these are, are guys who are really in shape and they, they've prepared for that part of it. What the instructors are trying to do is to completely break these men down and to get them to quit. Everything is designed to offer them the option to quit. All they have to do to quit is ring the bell three times. There's a bell always available to them. They don't have to say anything. They don't have to talk to anybody. They get up from whatever they're doing. They walk over to the bell and they ring it three times and then they get a nice little air-conditioned ride back to a base and they're redistributed throughout the Navy. Because they want to know if the options available to you, if you're under such intense agony, will you quit? Or will you be able to train yourself to continue forward even when it's the most difficult? And again, we can look at that and there's like, there's respect, but there's also just bewilderment, right? Like, why would you willingly subject yourself to this? This is nuts. You're telling me there was other, you, you could have sat at a, a desk in the Navy and done the, like, why would you go through this? The similar thing we're going to, I want us to look at today is something we see Jesus go through because, you know, these men go on and they, they retire and they write books and people buy them and they want to learn what's the, what's the mental thing I have to do to, to apply this to my life, right? How can I be as disciplined and have, have a, as much resolve as these men? And that can be helpful to some circumstance of how to navigate through the trials of this life. But more than that this morning, I want us to learn something from our Lord Jesus Christ that is more valuable than worldly grit or perseverance. And it comes through an example of his response to suffering and agony, not during some week of physical training, but during an evening in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this morning we're going to look at four lessons from the garden. The first one is this. Sin is a crushing weight to live under. Read with me in Matthew 26, verse 36. It says this. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So Jesus and his disciples have left the room where they had this Passover meal in a little outside of town, away from you know, the two million people who are packed into Jerusalem. There was this garden that they had access to. It probably was a privately owned garden by somebody that was allowing them to use it large enough uh, for a lot of people to fit in it, and we'll see here in a moment, but uh, it's on the side of the Mount of Olives, and uh, there's a definite switch in Jesus' demeanor from where they just were in the meal to where he is now. He's just been eating and instructing his disciples. He just called out Judas. And they get to this garden, and, and the further he goes into the garden, the more troubled he becomes. He leaves seven of them in one spot, and he takes his three closest friends and walks further, and he tells them, hey, I'm, I'm not doing well. 
can you, can, you, can you stay up? It's late in the night at this point. Can you stay awake and, and just be with me? And these are his closest friends. Like the, he, it says he's in such sorrow, distress, that he feels like he's going to die from it. This isn't Jesus being like overly dramatic. He's in a rough spot. I don't know if you've ever, uh, Luke uses the word agony in his gospel account. And I don't know if you've ever seen someone in true agony. It's a disturbing sight. It's, it's kind of like hard to watch. You want it, you can't, especially if you can't do anything. I can't help you. There's no like wound or something to, to bandage. It's just you're in such agony and I can do nothing about it. Luke also gives us that Jesus is experiencing a physical uh, diagnosis called hematohydrosis, which is a rare medical condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. The reason there's drops of blood falling as Jesus is, is praying and agonizing is because He's in such distress. What changed? I mean, moments ago, right? He's, he's just teaching, encouraging the disciples, sharing a meal together. And I'd imagine Peter, James, and John are kind of like, what, what is going on? Who is this guy? This is not the Jesus that we know. This man is, is broken. This is not the Jesus who we had to wake up during the storm on the boat. And he was like, guys, chill. Like, I got it. This is not the, the Jesus that was confronting the spiritual authorities. This is not the Jesus who was casting out demons that they couldn't. He's, he's broken before them. Listen to Jesus' prayer, and we'll start to understand what changed. Verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So this cup that he speaks of is associated both with a cup of suffering that he is having to drink, but also some translations um, have that. Jesus praying, remove this cup of suffering from me. But we know in, from the Old Testament that this cup is often associated with a cup of God's wrath, right? Isaiah 51, 17 says this, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Both are true. The, the cup of wrath is filling the cup of suffering, and it's referred to a cup because a, a cup is a measuring tool. It's a calculated amount. God's wrath is exactly corresponding to the amount of sin that is committed. There's a quote that goes, every sin adds a drop to the cup. So the agony and sorrow Jesus is dealing with here is because he has begun to get a taste of the cup. I don't want you to be confused for a moment. Jesus is not getting cold feet in this passage. 
He's not kind of thinking, I don't know, maybe not the best idea. He's not trying to squirm out from underneath the pressure. Rather, we are witnessing the same thing as Peter, James, and John, and that is the divine and human nature of Jesus, the hypostatic union, as mysterious as it is, is wrestling itself into a place of surrender. See, on one hand, you have Jesus' flesh and physical attributes beginning to feel the crushing weight of sin for the first time. See, up to this point, Jesus has only experienced a proximity to sin. He's lived in a sinful world, been around sinful people. And now as he begins to taste the cup, he is more aware than ever of what sin does to our mortal bodies. Not just the sin of one person, but the sin of every person for all time. If you remember, death did not exist until sin entered the world. And since that point, our bodies have an expiration date. And Jesus has been feeling the effects of that throughout his life, but never more than this point. And on the other hand, you have Jesus' divinity, his exact imprint of God's nature, as Hebrew 1 says. And there is now all that weight of that sin and unholiness, and it's right in the forefront of his mind, and it's crushing his spirit. It's like a harmful frequency that's playing that only he can hear, and it's making one of them crawl out of his skin because everything that he is is contrary to sin, but he must now bear it. An interesting thing to note is that Gethsemane means olive press. So this would have literally been a place where they harvested the olives off the side of the mountain and then extracted it. And the way they would extract it is they would take the olives and they would put it in this uh, kind of stone basin and a large stone wheel would, would be pushed by an ox or a mule and it would roll around and it would crush it. And then they would take the olives and they'd put it in a basket and do something like this with a, a lever and crushing stone on top of it and the, the weight of the stone would increase more and more and more until the oil started to run out of the olives and into kind of a channel and they would put clay pots underneath and collect the oil. And so the, the crushing weight of the stone would actually pull out of the olive the most fruitful part of it. It would, it would take the crushing to actually get to the thing the olive needed, and they would use that oil for consecration in the temple and for various things that were holy. And so here's Jesus in that place feeling the crushing weight of sin, and it is producing something for you and for me that is extremely valuable. And the lesson we can kind of pull from that is that sin is a crushing weight to live under. Only Jesus is doing it perfectly. The rest of us are crushed completely. See, God created you as a whole being, your physical and your spiritual tied together. And if the world really got honest with themselves and was willing to face the truth of their imperfection in sin, we would recognize that to live without the hope of Jesus would be too much of a crushing weight for us. Our sin is too much for us to recognize and look at without any hope of a savior. As a pastor, I've sat in the room with people 
who have lived under their sin for too long and they're mentally and physically exhausted, they're oftentimes sick. Even though we are born sinners, it's not our natural state. It's not what our body wants, the human body, the human soul. They crave repentance and relief from the crushing weight of sin, but we have no ability to lift it ourselves. So here's Jesus willingly placing himself under the crushing weight so that you and I don't have to. And it's leading to Jesus going through an immense amount of suffering. And the second lesson we're going to see from our Lord is that suffering produces intimacy with God. There is suffering from sin, but there is also suffering because we live in a sinful world. And Jesus takes this suffering to his father. In verse 39, he uses the word, my father. Again, in verse 42, he says it as he prays a second time. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. In the Gospel of Mark, he uses the term Abba, which means dad or daddy. It's an expression of familiarity and closeness that we only see Jesus use. No other Jew would have even used the term father, which is more kind of uh, formal, let alone Abba. But Jesus, in his moment of, of greatest suffering to this point, chooses to draw close to his father. He doesn't hide his emotions. He brings his honest thoughts to the Father while remaining in perfect connection with his Father as he prays for his will to be done, echoing the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. And this leads to an an intimate moment with his Father where they are are conversing with one another. The father is speaking to the son, and the son is speaking back to the father and aligning himself under God's will, even though he doesn't like what's happening. His physical body doesn't enjoy this process, but his spirit is submitting to the father's will. And for you and for me, this is a great example of how we should walk through suffering in our life, through the unknown situations, the hard situations that come up in our life. I've had a few of these moments, um, and I was thinking this week of, there was an intense season of our life when our son Jackson was born, where um, my wife crushed it, rock star, and our, our son is born, and immediately they sensed an issue, and so they took him and started working on him and had to intubate him and um, kind of everything was happening really fast and they say we have to take him to the NICU and so they wheel him out of the room haven't even like really looked at him haven't held him and he's being carried away and my wife in that moment just looks at me and she says go with our son and so I'm walking down the hallway and following this cart Um, with my son in it, and I immediately just start crying out to the Lord. And I I see him, and he's hooked up. He's got like a a CPAP thing on him, and he's, um, I I can't even touch him. 
And I'm, I'm crying out to God and I'm, I'm just saying, Lord, save my son. Do what only you can do. I trust you completely. I trust you completely. And a um, few hours go by and they keep working on it. We're not hearing a lot. And, and, and then they kind of eventually stabilize him. And then the, like more than six hours later, the first time Jen is holding him is in a chair as he's hooked up to all these wires and these tubes. And I remember I, I stepped out and, and went to get food or coffee or something for us. And I, and I come back in and she's holding him like this. And on her phone, she has this song playing. Um, and I just uh, <laughs> I want to read the lyrics. The song was, was singing, There was one when I was young who knew my heart, he knew my sorrow, he held my hand, and he led me to trust him. Now I am hidden in the safety of your love. I trust your heart and your intentions. Trust you completely. I'm listening intently. You'll guide me through these many shadows. And um, praise the Lord, Jackson is a, is a healthy six-year-old boy now. And I can't believe that um, the Lord uh, met me in those darkest moments. I mean, I, I, there was so much I could have said as I was walking down that hallway towards his room and all my spirit knew how to say was, Lord, Father, do what only you can do. I trust you completely. If there's another way, if there's something that can happen other than the way that this looks like this is going, can it be done? But if not, I trust your will. Trust you completely. And you'll guide me through these shadows. It's a sweet season with the Lord in the midst of the heart. I look back on it now with fond memories. Every time that song plays in our home, it, it just transports me back. And so the lesson for us is, is where do you turn in times of distress? When life is sorrowful and, and agonizing, what or who do you cast your cares on? Is it a certain relationship or person is it a substance or an escapism tendency? Or are you quick to cry out, my father, I need you. If there's another way, please do it. But I trust you even in the hard and in the hurt. Times of suffering will actually allow us to draw close to God independence like we could never experience otherwise. Your intimacy with God will grow. Your relationship with God will become more solidified of who he is and who you are because of suffering. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 3. He says that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The suffering Christ is Enduring here, it pulls him closer to his heavenly father, and we must see suffering as an opportunity to draw, to draw closer to ours as well. And his, his greatest means, his method of drawing close to the father is prayer. 
which leads us to our third lesson. Prayer is a powerful weapon against temptation. Verse 40. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus, amidst his great pain and distress, he pauses to check on his friends because he's concerned for what they're about to face, which is laughable when you think of what Jesus is about to face. But like a good shepherd, his heart is for his sheep. Back in verse 30 of this chapter, he gives them the instruction as they walk to the garden that they will all be scattered tonight because the shepherd will be struck. And Peter gives his classic line of, everyone else might do that, but I won't. And Jesus informs him, Peter, you won't just hide. You will deny that you even know me three different times before the sun is up. In a short amount of time, three different times you will deny me. And Peter again says, even if I have to die, I won't deny you. And all the disciples are like, yeah, us too. I mean, Peter, he's a pretty committed dude. He signed that dude up for buds. Like, you know, he's ringing the bell like 10 minutes in, right? Real gung-ho, not, not going to endure. See, he says that, like, I'll die first, Jesus. I will die first before I ever deny you. And a few minutes later, Jesus is literally sweating blood, about to die just from the pain of what he's experiencing in the garden. And all he asks is that Peter stays awake with him, and Peter falls asleep. I'm out. Too hard. It's been a long day. We've been up a long time. I've had a lot of matzah at the meal. Like, I'm full, man. Sitting in my stomach. It's kind of warm in this garden. Just close my eyes for a second. So peaceful. The birds chirping. Peter! What? 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 I wasn't sleeping. It's only been an hour. I'm, I'm literally, there's blood on me. Like, can you just stay awake for a little bit here? <laughs> Temptation is coming. Pray. You said you die for me, right? Well, then stay awake and pray so that you have the endurance for what's about to happen to you. Your spirit is willing, Peter, but your flesh is so weak. Peter's like, okay, 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 I got it. Okay, just stay focused. All right, how do you teach us to pray? Our Father um, in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom, heaven has bread. Mm. <laughs> right, and then he's asleep again. Two different times this happens to Peter. Jesus goes and he, he prays and he pours his heart out to the Father three different times and he comes back and sees his closest friends dead asleep. Is he offended that they won't stay up with him? Does he just want the company? You know, he's the guy who's like driving through the night and it's like, you're the passenger, you gotta stay awake, you gotta keep me awake, that's your one job. No, <laughs> he knows what they're about to face and so he's trying to offer them the greatest weapon against them. Peter thinks he's good. P Peter thinks he's got it figured out. And in the, that moment, he was absolutely positively sure that no matter what he would face, he would honor Christ. But he wasn't willing to prepare himself for the unknown. Peter knew what he knew, but he didn't know what he didn't know. And church, this has to be a word for us. Are you prepared for the unknowable, the unthinkable, the completely unexpected, shocking news or circumstance that you didn't see coming and now you have to respond? 
the weapon of prayer against temptation is a great asset for the believer. Rather than to immediately go into crisis mode in your life and just the immediate decision to respond and, and how your flesh decides, right? What happens directly after this? Jesus is confronted by his betrayer and he's about to be arrested and what does Peter do? He grabs a sword and he chops a dude's ear off thinking that'll help. The account probably says there's over 200 men that come in and arrest Jesus, maybe even upwards to 1,000. There's an, there's an army that comes to arrest Jesus and Peter's like, I'll take out one guy. And Jesus is like, stop. Peter. Peter, I could, I could ask my father right now for, for 12 legions of angels. You're missing it. The greatest weapon you had was not the sword on your belt. It was the time of prayer that you missed. The situation's here now. You weren't ready for it. Oh, church family, can I admit my conviction that I am not ready for the unknowable. I have not prayed enough. I'm relying so much on what I brought with me. I've prayed before. I've read it. I know his word. I'll be good. And then something completely out of left field happens and I don't know how to respond because I have not spent enough time with my father. Our church is a church that needs to be defined by our prayer, our desire to have a growing, intimate relationship with our Father through prayer. Fresh Encounter next Sunday night is not just another thing on the calendar that will make us feel more spiritual going into Holy Week. It is the time to gird up and be ready, be prepared for what God might do in the season that we're in. Easter is one day. It's going to be a great day. Super excited for it. But the time of prayer will prepare us for anything and everything that the Lord is going to do among us and what the enemy might throw at us. And if we as a church say, man, maybe if I can make it, we, we are falling asleep. We are not awake and alert, prepared to fight against temptation. See, it's not that the, the prayer was removing the suffering from Jesus. It's not that the prayer would have removed the opportunity to deny Jesus for Peter. It, it was a weapon to fight against the temptation to give in to sin. It's not a magic wand to remove our suffering. If we just pray, everything will be better. But if we truly believe that God can use our suffering to produce good things in our life, then sometimes the prayer is for us to come to submission to that truth. So our final lesson from the garden is that submission provides courageous resolve. Verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, this cannot pass unless I drink it, you will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my, my betrayer is at hand. 
Jesus closes his time of prayer by submitting himself to the Father's will. And in that submission, I believe he was able to stand up from a place of great agony and sorrow and find a courageous resolve to walk and meet his captors. Right? He's not in the midst of praying and, and he hears them coming and he looks up in fear and he's like, guys, let's go. And he tried to sneak out of the back of garden to avoid this as long as possible. No, he has communed deeply with his father and found the answer to the question of, is there another way to be? There isn't. You have to drink the cup for this to be finished. And Jesus can now willingly submit himself to the father's will and do what he came to do. I want to pause and address something. There's many people who um, use this as an argument to say that God, God is evil. Look at him murder his son, saying it's for love, right? This is, and they'll use this passage and say, Jesus didn't want to do this, and God is force-feeding him the cup of wrath. There's so much to be said to help rectify that false thinking, but let me simply give you this. 1 Peter 1 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. What is this saying? It's saying that the cross was not God the Father's secret idea, that he was hiding from the Son. We are not tritheistic in our view of God. We are monotheistic. There is three persons, but there is one God. Meaning that when Isaiah and the other prophets were writing that the spirit of Jesus is revealing to them the sufferings that Jesus was going to experience. Jesus is completely aware of the Father's will. God's will and Jesus' will are one. The suffering and pain that Jesus is experiencing in the garden and ultimately on the cross is not a cruel punishment that the Father has thought up. And Jesus is standing in between us and the Father saying, hey, I'll take the beating. Jesus is not crying out in the garden trying to ring the bell and get out from underneath what the Father is trying to do. He is experiencing the full weight of the sacrifice that must be made to rescue sinners from hell. God did not murder his son. We murdered his son. And if for a moment we think that God's cruelty is what led Jesus to the cross, let us remind ourselves that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ willingly walked toward the death on the cross to be the perfect sacrifice to all those who would come to know this grace, this good news that even angels long to understand. The lesson for us, loved ones, is that while we may not know the why or the how, we can trust that God is in control and will do anything and everything to bring us closer to him. Even sacrifice of himself through his son so that we might know life. 
So whatever you are facing, whatever suffering you have had to endure, you have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses and your pain. And the submission you give to God can give you a courageous resolve to walk through life unafraid because God is a death defeater and all things are possible. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus rises from this garden scene with a courageous resolve and goes to meet his betrayer and the army of people there to arrest him. This is often called the last temptation of Jesus. You think of the 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, they must seem like nothing now for what he's about to face. His hour has come, but he does not shrink back from it. This is our Savior. Even in his darkest hour, he is teaching us how to endure the suffering of a sinful world. Listen to what Hebrew 5 says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That's our God. Willingly submitting himself We have to grasp this aspect of our Savior. If you look throughout time at the greatest leaders and kings and rulers, history portrays them as much like the Navy SEALs. Strong men showcasing their grit, their endurance to overcome obstacles, their their ability to defeat enemies. If you were trying to present these people as examples of greatness or glory, you would never showcase a moment like this that we see from Jesus on his face, crying out in agony, then allowing himself to be captured, not even putting up a fight. This doesn't sound like a king. That's because our king is also a suffering servant, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. Hallelujah to the son of suffering who came for me and for you. May the lessons we pull out of this spur us on to live a life that is worthy of the Christ who suffered in our place. Would you pray with me? Lord, I ask that there would be a deep sense of our need for you, a desire to not just coast through our life and take some hits on the chin and and keep going and wake up every day and I'm doing as best as I can. Would Would we look at this example of our Savior who wrestled through everything that came with the sacrifice and the punishment that he endured and still willingly submitted to the plan that was set forth at the beginning of time. Lord, we trust you in everything, but sometimes it's hard in the middle of it. When the pain is real, when the crushing weight is on us, 
we want, we just, we want to pray that it would be removed. But Lord, would we be willing to submit ourselves to something greater? Same way the oil is extracted from the olive, would we be willing to know that there is something that is being produced in us through our suffering? Would we count it all joy when we experience trials because we know that we are sharing in a suffering that you endured? We are like you in our moments of suffering. So King Jesus, would you receive glory and honor from our lives? Would our prayer life model that of one who knows you are in control and we love you? Thank you for your blood. Thank you for all that you've modeled for us. We worship you, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.